0: Welcome to Good Fellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Rachel Jones, a GP, and today Anna Fenton discusses the management of premenstrual syndrome in primary care. Anna is a gynecological endocrinologist at Canterbury District Health Board, where she's clinical lead for bone densitometry. She's a member of the Pharmacology and Therapeutic Advisory Committee for Endocrinology and is past president of the Australasian Menopause Society. Welcome Anna. So can you start with sharing some statistics about PMS?
1: Yeah, sure. I think this is a, it's a really important problem for GPs to uh, be familiar with because it affects probably 90% of women at some stage during their reproductive life. But in terms of the women who sustain uh, persistent and significant symptoms that impact on their quality of life on a regular basis, we're probably looking at 20 to 30% of reproductive age women. So that's a, a mighty big group. Uh, on top of that, we have the Four to eight percent of women who have that more severe variant of PMS uh, which is now called premenstrual dysphoric disorder uh, or PMDD
0: are there specific diagnostic criteria that GPS need to be aware of Anna
1: yes there are and I think um, you know medscape is quite a good place to go to to look uh, at some very good reviews on PMS and PMDD uh, that have these diagnostic criteria listed uh, and for instance if if we look at the the most Uh, updated guidelines on diagnosis of PMS. Uh, They tell us that uh, the woman needs to have up to four symptoms uh, in that luteal phase of her cycle, uh, resolving fairly much by the time menstrual bleeding is underway. It can be uh, physical symptoms, behavioral symptoms, uh, or mood-related ones, or they may be purely physical and behavioral, and in that case, uh, five or more symptoms are needed. Um, For the PMDD uh, diagnostic criteria, uh, they're part of the DSM-5 classification, and that requires five or more uh, significant symptoms, uh, one of which has to be a predominant mood issue, whether that be uh, depression, anxiety. Uh, irritability, um, intense anger or rage. And again, uh, the the, the history has to include that these symptoms occur predominantly during the luteal phase. Uh, They have to have a significant impact on that woman's quality of life. Uh, and ability to go out to daily activities and work, uh, and they have to be confirmed prospectively, and that's where being able to download some of the the charts for charting symptoms uh, that often use a visual analogue scale can be very uh, helpful. So yes, there are clear uh, criteria for the the diagnosis of these conditions now, which I think is a big bonus.
0: So what causes PMS?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's, there's lots of myths out there about PMS. We have gone through phases where it's been thought uh, to be due to too much estrogen or too little estrogen or a lack of progesterone or vitamin B6 deficiency and these are often things that women come in saying that they've read online and I think the research now discounts all of those uh, as um, a potential contributor to the PMS. What we know is that the the women who develop these symptoms have uh, an exaggerated response to what is a very normal pattern of hormone changes over a cycle. So there's nothing weird about their hormones. In addition to that, the research suggests that these women inherit some kind of serotonin deficiency, which is why when we're using uh, hormonal therapies or treatments for for PMS, we'll often look at an SSRI agent. So by altering serotonin levels, there is um, an impact. And there also appears to be a role for calcium and magnesium deficiency. And we're not exactly sure what exactly that does, but certainly, again, by correcting that, Uh, you do have an impact on their well-being. But first and foremost, it appears to be this exaggerated response to normal hormone changes.
0: And why are some women more vulnerable to PMS than others? Are there predisposing risk factors, Anna?
1: correct and it seems to be the same group of women who uh, may go on to develop postnatal depression so they're very sensitive to uh, the change in hormones following a delivery and again it's the same group of women that we see at menopause who perhaps run into problems with mood at that stage. So there's clearly a genetic uh, predisposition there that we haven't quite got to the bottom of yet.
0: What differentials in diagnosis should a GP consider?
1: I think that's a really important question because this is where the history is so important. Uh, With PMS, you have to have that that clear history of symptoms beginning sometime after ovulation and resolving as menstrual bleeding begins or at least by day five of the next menstrual cycle. Um, So there's got to be this clear window of time during the follicular phase where Uh, she's back to normal. And if that window's not there, then you start to think of other differential diagnoses, such as, uh, you know, a true clinical depression. Um, If the symptoms are particularly severe, is it PMDD, not PMS? Uh, And there are some women who present with temporal lobe epilepsy that may uh, be manifest with behavioural changes, but those events obviously tend to be more random uh, rather than strictly related to the menstrual cycle, so it's where the the clinical history taking is absolutely paramount when you're making this diagnosis.
0: Is hormone profiling necessary when we suspect a clear-cut case of PMS?
1: Generally, the answer would be no because if you're going to plan to track the estrogen, progesterone, LH, or FSH levels, they they look very normal in the vast majority of women that you test. But where uh, hormone testing can be useful is to look at uh, or trying to exclude conditions that may aggravate uh, the, the severity of the PMS or perhaps. Uh, present in a similar way. So uh, we'll often do hormone testing to look for thyroid disease uh, and we often uh, check androgen levels because we know that women who have uh, androgen imbalances such as polycystic ovary syndrome are again more likely uh, to have uh, PMS than other women. So that's where the tests are useful there.
0: Let's move on to discussing different management options, Anna, starting with general lifestyle measures.
1: And I think, as most you know things in, in medicine that we're dealing with, we will often start with lifestyle. Uh, we know from a range of, of good research studies that exercise does have uh, a benefit and it does uh, reduce the severity of symptoms for many women. Um, but there is a real lack of evidence that dietary changes really have any uh, definite improvement uh, on a woman's well-being Um, despite that uh, there is some tentative uh, research that suggests that uh, we should be advising women to avoid alcohol um, too much refined sugar uh, and possibly high-fat food Um, but that's about as far as the research has gone at the moment
0: What are your key learning points about hormonal treatments to manage symptoms?
1: Yes, well, I think uh, there are some really useful uh, key points here. One is that there are a wide range of options because I think often as doctors we feel that we're really not getting access to a a range of very good options to treat this. But I think being aware that we have a range of options is is key point number one. Key point number two is don't reach for the contraceptive pill because Mm. apart from one exception, uh, the research really shows that the contraceptive pill has very little positive impact uh, in treating PMS. Now, the exception to that rule is Yaz, uh, which has been specifically designed to manage PMS, and it's different to the other pills because uh, of A, its ingredients, and B, uh, the, the shortened placebo pill phase. So its progestogenic component, drosperinone, is an anti-androgen and it's an anti mineralocorticoid And both of those qualities uh, we know have some positive impact uh, in treating PMS. Uh, and certainly the shorter placebo pill phase uh, tends to keep the hormone swings a little more suppressed than the normal pills do. So that would really be the only contraceptive that we would recommend in this area. So I think it's it's being aware that there are a range of options and don't just uh, prescribe the contraceptive mm-hmm. pill.
0: What other drug measures could we discuss with our patient?
1: And I think this is where it's really useful to sit the women down and let them uh, know that there are you know, a range of really good options. So we would talk to them about using uh, spironolactone So like the drosperinone in Yaz, this has the uh, hormone blocking, male hormone blocking effect, and it has the anti-mineralocorticoid effect, uh, and there are studies that show that that is of benefit in reducing a wide range of symptoms uh, associated with PMS, not just fluid retention uh, and bloating. Uh, We talked to them about uh, using SSRI uh, therapies, uh, obviously to have that direct effect on serotonin levels within the brain in particular. Uh, We know that those agents also have a direct effect on the way the brain processes hormones. So they work in a slightly different way uh, to what we uh, would expect with um, depression. Uh, They can be difficult options to sell, but I think once you've had that discussion with women, it can be more acceptable as an option, particularly when they're aware that they can be used just for the luteal phase uh, of the cycle and not continuously. Uh, And then uh, we move on to discuss ways that we can are um, more completely suppress ovulation and the hormone swings over a cycle. And we can do that with uh, agents such as Cyproterone uh, or with the GnRH analogues such as Zolidex. Um, they tend to be options that are more uh, end of the line options where you've tried some of the simpler therapies first but they can be used very successfully in this area.
0: Is there an evidence base to support the use of supplements such as calcium and magnesium?
1: Yes, there is. And I think this surprises women that, you know, something so simple and straightforward as these kind of mineral supplements uh, can be of some benefit. But there are um, a range of well-performed randomized controlled trials, particularly with calcium, uh, showing that 1,000 milligrams a day can uh, reduce symptom severity uh, in up to 80% of women. Mm -hmm. Uh, The data with magnesium is less robust, uh, but again, there is some data suggesting doses of around 600 milligrams a day or more, uh, a dose which is needed to get the magnesium across the blood-brain barrier, um, and particularly when combined with calcium, can be um, of benefit.
0: And what about products um, such as saffron?
1: There is, um, I guess, a growing evidence base with some of the complementary therapies. Uh, There's some preliminary evidence with Vitex Agnus Castus, or Chase Tree, uh, Mm. that this might be of some benefit. And we know that it does act as an anti-androgen. Some women use it uh, for polycystic ovary syndrome. So there is some rational uh, thought process that might back its use up, but the data with that is preliminary. Uh, There is a randomized controlled trial that was published uh, back in 2008 uh, in the British Journal of ONG, so a good, reputable journal, uh, that examined uh, saffron used in a dose of 30 milligrams a day, and again, that showed superior efficacy to placebo. Mm. Uh, but that's about where the data with complementary therapies of the of the herbal and, and um, over-the-counter remedies uh, starts and stops.
0: What role does psychological-based therapies, for example, cognitive behavioural therapy play in modifying symptoms?
1: Yes, again, uh, there's a growing uh, evidence base there, particularly with CBT, uh, and some evidence to suggest that light therapy and massage might also be of benefit.
0: Is surgical intervention a last resort, Anna?
1: Yeah, very much a last resort. I have had two patients in my entire career uh, that have gone down that path, so it is an unusual place to get to, particularly with the wide range of other options we have to effectively treat this. Uh, I think the women often talk about having a hysterectomy. Uh, Obviously, removing the uterus alone is not really going to help these symptoms if it leaves the ovaries behind. Uh, If you remove the ovaries in someone who is still young and of reproductive age, you then plunge them into a severe surgically-induced menopause, which comes Mm -hmm. with all of its own issues, uh, and then will require hormone therapy right the way through until the normal age of menopause. So it's not an easy option, but I think for women with really severe symptoms, when you can be really sure uh, that nothing else will work and that there are no other problems going on in the background that you may have you know, made a misdiagnosis uh, with, uh, then I guess it's still on the list of options, but very rarely used.
0: To conclude, Anna, your take-home messages from this podcast.
1: Well, I think being aware that PMS is common, um, it can have a really significant effect on women. It's not something that we should think of rather pejoratively as being in a woman's head. Uh, It it sort of is, but not in the sense, I think, that's been used in the past. And I think now that we're beginning to understand the the pathophysiology, uh, we really do have a a fantastic range of products uh, that we can uh, prescribe for women, advise that they try, Uh, and so it is a condition that I think it's a fantastic thing to treat. Uh, Women uh, struggle to get a diagnosis and struggle to get effective treatment, but we do have the means at our disposal to treat it very effectively.
0: Thank you, Anna. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. If you are a New Zealand primary care practitioner and would like to claim CME points for listening to this interview, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.